Glory to Jesus Christ. Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish presents Light of the East, a program revealing how the Eastern Catholic Churches have nourished the Roman Catholic Churches and today's world in profound ways through their histories, traditions, mysteries, and spirituality. Hello, I am Father Thomas J. Loya, pastor of Annunciation of the Mother of God Byzantine Catholic Church in Homer Glen, Illinois. And this is a story of the Eastern Churches, an inspiring story of faith, courage, intrigue, mystery, spirituality, dissension, and reconciliation. But most of all, this is an expression of a great experience of faith through our unique divine liturgy. Join with me now as we look toward the Light of the East. Light of the East is also supported by Eastern Christian Publications, where you can find the prayers of the Catholic Byzantine Daily Office at ecpubs.com and easternchristianmedia.com, a broadband network for you to learn more about the Eastern Catholic Churches. That's easternchristianpublications.com. Light of the East is also funded by a grant from the Koch Foundation. Glory to Jesus Christ. Welcome to Light of the East. I am Father Thomas Lawyer, your host. I hope that your civil calendar is going well for you, but also your liturgical calendar. And this month of January is full of great, great figures from the history of the church, largely monasticism, and also some of the patriarchs who were also monastics as well. In every age, our Lord raises up people who turn the church and the world on its axis. For example, the fathers of the church that we recognize, the apostles, of course, obviously, and the martyrs and monastics. In our day and age, we have people like Pope Benedict XVI of now blessed memory. He was a man of our age, and I believe a Lord has risen up to help turn the church and the world on its axis. He was one of the architects of the Second Vatican Council, its documents. He was just a young man at that time, in his 30s, actually, but they recognized his gifts, his brilliance, and he was. He was a brilliant man of the church, brilliant theologian, probably the greatest theological mind of our time. And he helped to architect the Second Vatican Council, which means that he knew really what the Vatican Council was about, what it intended. And then what happened is the years passed after the Second Vatican Council, he then, of course, became Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, then, of course, Pope Benedict XVI. And during those times when he saw that there was, as many of you know, sort of a commandeering of some of the Vatican to spirituality, a warping of it, a distorting of it, and so the church in some areas was going in different and wrong directions, Cardinal Ratzinger, later the Pope, tried to right that ship with his writings. He also formed a group called the Communio, which was a group of theologians that were, like him, influential for Vatican II at the time and really knew what it was supposed to be about. And they got together and they began to publish things that would help to correct wherever the ship was leaning or listing. He would correct that listing so that the ship, the post-Vatican II church, would stay on track. So he was called at the time when he was working for the documents of Vatican II, he was called or considered to be a so-called liberal. But now he's considered, and sometimes with disdain by certain people, as a so-called conservative. So which was he? 
Well, this is a perfect example that he was neither. He was both and, but not in the sense that we think of liberal and conservative in the secular sphere. He was liberal in that he worked hard and understood that the church that he knew, now remember, he was a pre-Vatican II priest. So he knew the church where it was only the Latin mass, Gregorian chant, and so on. And he knew that that church in all of its teachings, which are really are God's teachings, God's order of creation, God's will, God's way. That's really what the church is. He knew that that church needed to be assisted in interfacing now, bringing the good news of the gospel to the modern world, which had many, many changes. There are certain changes that happened with modern technology that really shifted things in the world. And so the church was going to respond that's what Benedict XVI, or Cardinal Ratzinger, was about, or when he was a young priest, too, working for the Second Vatican Council. He was about helping the church to interface with the modern world, but not changing the church. A lot of people who speak of him with disdain that he was so-called conservative, whenever I review those things, I look at the list that they have of offenses, why they didn't like the Pope. It's all about the teaching of the church. It's all he did was present the teaching of the church. He did not change that. They expected him to change it because they thought he was a so-called liberal. He was not a liberal. He was not a conservative. He was a great scholar, a great mind of the church. He knew the church appreciated its truth, its goodness, and its beauty because those are the qualities of God. And God is present in his church. The church is the mystical body of Christ. There's many analogies for the church, but the mystical body of Christ is one of the most important analogies or descriptions of how we understand the church. The church is mystical, so it takes a number of ways to understand it. But it's basically God present on earth. God is true, good, and beautiful, and so is the church. And this particular pope of blessed memory, Benedict XVI, he had a great, great sensitivity and appreciation for the truth, the goodness, and the beauty of the church. He loved good liturgy, beautiful liturgy. He brought back things. Sometimes it said he pulled things out of the closet to wear as a pope especially during the Mass. These were things that were not art-conservative. They weren't going backwards. They were just things that were always in the church, but somehow got shoved in the closet in recent decades. He just took them out and put them on because he saw that they were beautiful. They had antiquity. They were good for all times. They had truth to them and goodness. And that's how he conducted the worship of the church during his time as Pope. So the church is never conservative or liberal. We speak in those terms, but they really don't apply. The church is timeless. It's neither liberal or conservative. It is what it is. And it can, however, and must, and it does change its ways of interfacing with the world of a certain time, a certain era, but it does not change its teachings. It just finds other ways, deeper perspectives, different insights, different ways to approach the world. And this was really the goal of the Second Vatican Council. It had some dogmatic constitutions to it, but largely it was a pastoral council. In other words, how do we get this marvelous, marvelous revelation of God, this genius of the church, to the average person? to the day-by-day person, Christian, Catholic, and even non-Catholic? How do we reach out to them in a way that somehow we can connect with them? We can help them understand us better as we understand them better. It was that kind of reaching out. And later on, there were terms used such as collegiality, synodality, and of course with Pope Francis, this idea of accompaniment. These are all things that grew out of the Vatican II, really the documents or the real spirituality of Vatican II, 
These things, of course, were commandeered by other groups. They were distorted and so on. So we have that problem. Yes, we do. There are many things that happened after Vatican II in the church, which never were meant to be. And this is particularly true in the Western lung of the church. Now, in the Eastern lung of the church, the Second Vatican Council is something that we really revel in. We love the documents of Vatican II because there was a section for the Eastern churches, which urged us to make sure that we return or uncover, rediscover any of our ancient traditions and practices, that if they were lost in any way or there was influence of what we call Latinization, we were to purge ourselves of Latinizations and we were to recover what is truly ours. And that was a great time for our church. It still is unfolding because it really invigorated and strengthened the Eastern churches. And many, many people came to understand the Eastern churches much deeper, even Eastern Catholics themselves. It was like kind of like pulling the veil off, almost like opening up a, a treasure chest or a, a, a wonderful box that you find somewhere in grandma's attic. And you open it up and here's all these treasures these wonderful things, memorabilia, jewelry, all kinds of wonderful things. Well, this is what happened to the Eastern churches after the Second Vatican Council, and in fact, because of the Second Vatican Council. So there were many, many wonderful things relative to the Second Vatican Council for both lungs of the church, certainly for the Eastern churches. It's just that some things got commandeered. They did not get commandeered for the Eastern churches. They did get commandeered for the Western churches. And Pope Benedict XVI, and even before that when he was Cardinal Ratzinger, tried to make sure that the church stayed on track in terms of what the Second Vatican Council was all about, because if anybody knew what it was about, it was him. So his passing, it's a great loss to the church, because there goes one of the real vestiges of the real Second Vatican Council, of what was happening, of how the Holy Spirit was moving the church at that time. We're losing one of its greatest pillars and spokesmen and representative in Pope Benedict XVI. There's not too many left from that era, especially those who are very, very significant, as significant as he was. And so this is a loss, but we thank Almighty God for the gift of him, that he was there, and he remained consistent in his devotion, his faithfulness to the church. So as we say in the Eastern churches, may God grant to the departed soul of his servant, Joseph Ratzinger, Pope Benedict XVI, eternal rest and a blessed repose. For there is no more pain, sighing, or sorrow, but only life everlasting. And may his memory be eternal. When we say eternal memory in the Eastern churches, what we mean is we're asking God to remember that person. We're asking God to remember that person. We're not talking about our memories. We're talking about God's memory, which is something very different. It's a divine remembrance. Really, we're asking God to take this soul into his mind, into his heart, because only God himself can love and know this person perfectly and forever. And this, of course, is what we want for someone that is very beloved, especially someone of the caliber of Pope Benedict XVI, Joseph Ratzinger. May his memory be eternal. And we come back, we're going to talk about some other great men that God raised up during their particular era in which shifted, turned the earth and the church on its axis. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. Every day, Father Loya posts a brief two-minute Facebook video on the Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish homepage. You'll be amazed at what you can learn just by watching. Light of the East mission is Christianity's reunion. And to tell the story of the Eastern lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support. In order to keep Light of the East on the air, you can make a donation now 
by going to byzantinecatholic.com. That's byzantinecatholic.com. And then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. You are listening to the Choirs of Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Church under the direction of Timothy Woods in Homer Glen, Illinois. This is the music you hear on Light of the East and is sung during the Sacred Liturgy at Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish. Order online at byzantinecatholic.com. All we ask is a donation of $20 or more, which includes shipping and handling to Annunciation Parish for each Theosis CD. Send a check made out to Annunciation Parish at 14610 Wilcook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. And may God grant you This is Archbishop Salvatore Cordiglione of the Archdiocese of San Francisco, and you are listening to Light of the East. Did you know that God constructed women's arms differently than men's? I am Father Thomas Loya with the Theology of the Body Moment for the Tabor Life Institute. The axis of a woman's outstretched arms angles inward at the elbow, whereas in men the axis is straighter. This enables women to bring things to themselves easier than men. Everything about a woman's body, her mind, heart, and soul, is designed for connectedness and to bring the world close to her heart. The language of her body says that God is close, tender, and loving. But she also has what John Paul II called a genius. It is her gift of receptivity, stamped in the very design of her body. The Pope said that this makes woman the archetype of the human race because God designed the human race simply to receive his love. To find out more about the theology of the body, visit TaborLife.org. TaborLife.org. Welcome back to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loya, your host. We're talking today about great people, in this particular case, men, who God raises up in certain times. And that's always my hope. Many of you may be at the point of perhaps even despairing about things in the church. Let's face it. The things are tough and confused in many ways in the church and outside of the church. This is a very difficult era we're living in. But one of my signs of hope is that I look back historically in the church, and there are many eras where there was great corruption, confusion, decadence, attacks from within and without, especially with heresies or outright blood persecution, white and red martyrdom of all sorts. Always. There were times when there were actually different popes. They didn't know who was the right one. Remember the popes of Avignon? You know, there was some in France, some in Rome. They had to decide who was the real one. I mean, that would be unthinkable today, but it happened. So there were tremendous problems in every era of the church. And in fact, many of the great people in the history of the church and the great monastics and fathers of the church and saints, they were famous for renewing or being sources of renewal for the corruption in the church at that time. Well, one of those 
groups of people were the desert fathers and eventually desert mothers, the great monastics, starting back in the 4th and 3rd centuries of the church. And this week in the Byzantine liturgical calendar, we're celebrating the chief of them, the original one, and his name is St. Anthony. Now, not Anthony of Padua. He came much later in the Western church. This is St. Anthony the Great of monasticism, actually of Egypt. And this is his story. And again, I'm reading from the Synaxarian, a great, great book every family and every parish should have. Anthony was an Egyptian, born about 250 in a village called Quemen, El Arens, near Heraclopius. After the death of his rich and noble parents, he shared his inherited possessions with his sister, who was still in her minority, made sure that she was cared for, gave away his half of the inheritance to the poor. At the age of 20, consecrated himself to the life of asceticism that he had desired from childhood. At first, he lived near his own village, but then, in order to escape the disturbance of men, went off into the desert on the shores of the Red Sea, where he spent 20 years as a hermit in company with no one but God in unceasing prayer, pondering in contemplation, patiently undergoing inexpressible demonic temptations. Now, I'm going to stop right there for a moment. And it said he went off to avoid the disturbances of men. What happened was monasticism grew out of a great, great sincerity in the hearts of Christians at that time, who actually lamented that the blood persecution of Christianity had ceased for the most part. It always rises up here and there, even in our time. But for the most part, it, it ceased. And they actually wanted to make this extreme witness about their love of God. They wanted to become martyrs, and they were actually disappointed that they couldn't. So they found a way to still be martyrs. We call that white martyrdom. And also, they were so serious about their faith that after the persecutions, which oftentimes happens, whenever there's a freedom in the church, there is a, a kind of a vulnerability for, well, complacency or decadence. It's, it's good to be free in the church, to practice our faith, but there's a downside to that. In other words, when we're not suffering or persecuted, there's actually a, a downside to, to being free of that. And that downside is we can slip into complacency and mediocrity. And these sincere Christians didn't want to do that. So they want to get away from the world. They want to get away from, get away from all the parting and the superficial living that was starting to happen. So they went into the deserts and lived a white martyrdom. They died to the worldly life in every way they could. And they underwent severe fasting and penance. And this is what we know today as monasticism. And monasticism in the West gave rise to things like religious orders. You know, the order of St. Francis, the Jesuits, the, the Dominicans, etc. Those all came from the Eastern monasticism. So let's continue with the story of St. Anthony the Great. His fame spread throughout the whole world. His fame spread through the whole world, and around him gathered many disciples whom he, by word and example, placed on the path of salvation. In 85 years of ascetic life, he went only twice to Alexandria, the first time to seek martyrdom during a time of persecution of the church, and the second at the invitation of St. Athanasius to refute the Arians' slanderous allegations that he too was a follower of the Arian heresy. He departed this life at the age of 105. Imagine that, living to 105 when you're living a severe life in the desert. He left behind a whole army of disciples and followers, and although Anthony was unlettered, he was, as a counselor and teacher, one of the most learned men of his age, as also was St. Athanasius the Great. When some Hellenic philosophers tried to test him with literary learning, Anthony shamed them with the question, which is older, the understanding or the book, and which of these is the source of the other? 
the Shane philosophers dispersed, for they saw that he had only book learning without understanding, while Anthony had understanding. Here was a man who had attained perfection so far as man is able on earth. Here was the educator of educators, teacher of teachers, who for a whole 85 years perfected himself, and only thus was able to perfect many others. Full of years and great works, Anthony entered into rest in the Lord in the year 356 A.D. Now, monasticism, as St. John Paul II said in his document, Light of the East, which is where we get the name of our program here, Light of the East, in, in Latin, the document is called Orientale Lumen. In that document, Pope John Paul II, St. John Paul II, said that monasticism is the reference point for all of the baptized. Now, this severe, almost surreal, superheroic life of St. Anthony the Great and many other monastics like him who followed him, I know it sounds almost as I said, surreal or unreal, unattainable. But monasticism does exist and should exist in every Christian life. And it does in your own. You may not realize it. Actually, it'd be helpful for all of us to realize it and to amplify it, to magnify it, to kind of go with it. Don't complain about it. What is that aspect of monasticism? First of all, it is about how we don't always get everything we want, that we do have to deny ourselves or we have to struggle through things for which we have been denied. And we have to always look at life in a way that is present, where God is present, where we can see God in that. Our choices always have to be to die to our old self and rise to our best self. A modern-day prophet of our time, Matthew Kelly, would put it this way, very simply, so we can all understand. He would call it becoming the best version of yourself. He would always say, Every choice you make, you ask yourself, will this help me to become the best version of myself, or will it take away from that process? Very simple. That's monasticism. Now, Matthew Kelly put it in those simple, everyday terms, but what it is is really borrowing from monasticism, where every choice, every aspect of life is either an affirmation of our baptism, will work towards our holiness or best version of ourselves, or it will take away from that in some way, from the littlest thing to the biggest thing. In other words, you really need that second dessert. Yeah, you'd like it. There's nothing really bad about doing it. But if you want to really perfect yourself, you would say, hmm, you know, I'd like this, but I'm going to say no to myself because I don't really need it, although I would enjoy it. There's nothing really wrong if I took a second helping or enjoyed it. But if I want to perfect myself, this little choice, it's just little insignificant choice will work in that direction. In fact, you know what the desert monks would say? People like Anthony the Great, they would say, when you come to the table to eat, don't satiate yourself. In other words, don't fill yourself. Walk away from the table just a little bit hungry. That's a way of saying no to self. It's about never letting yourself be totally satiated, at least in an, in an earthly way, but rather to be satiated in a spiritual way. So you, you die to self so that you can rise to your true self. In other words, to Christ. And this is what these great monks wanted. Now, how about... Those of you who are married, well, this may sound strange, but the most crucial ingredient to a happy marriage is monasticism. That's right. In other words, the practice of dying to self, especially in marriage, and making a gift of self to the other, of rising to love the self, that's monasticism. That's the monastic element in your marriage. And secondly, both of you individually and as a couple, put God first. Christ first. You know, in the Russian Orthodox tradition, when a couple got married, 
In their first week of marriage, they didn't go off to an exotic honeymoon. They went to a monastery. That's right. Yes, to make sure that their marriage together started out completely focused on Christ. In other words, they would be, while they're married, they at the same time would be like monks. That's what that means. It means to have that sacramental, self-possessed, self-disciplined approach to everything in life. Yes, even human sexuality. That's the monastic element. Plus, there are times, such as we're going to come up on very soon, like the Lenten time, when we, we do fast and pray and do penance. That is our practice of monasticism. And monasticism has to be incorporated into every aspect of our life. Every aspect. You know, for those of you who are married, one of the most complimenting things they can say to you is, you know, you would have made a good monk. And she, your wife, would have made a good nun. That's right. That would be an affirmation of the happiness of your marriage. Monasticism is a reference point for all of the baptized. Thank you for listening. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. To hear Light of the East again, visit ByzantineCatholic.com and click on the Features and Programs tab and on iTunes. Thank you for listening to Light of the East. We encourage you to tell a friend about Light of the East and to visit ByzantineCatholic.com. Light of the East is produced by ADC Media. Radio is it's training for the troops. It's a interaural of the ear boot camp. The folks who listen, who grow in their faith, grow in charity, grow in all the virtues, they then go out and exert an influence far beyond just themselves. Catholic Radio has an exponential effect for bringing people deeper into the faith. Dr. Ray Garendi thinks Catholic Radio is important. So should you. Thank you for listening. Next week, we will return to the light of the East. To learn more about Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish, visit our website, byzantinecatholic.com, where you will also find an archive of all of our programs. In order to continue Light of the East with its mission of Christianity's reunion, we need your support with a donation. Any amount will be a blessing. Please make out a check to Light of the East Radio and send it to Light of the East, 14610 Will Cook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. That's Light of the East, 14610 Wilcook Road, spelled W-I-L-L-C-O-O-K Road, Homer Glen, Illinois. Or donate online on the homepage of ByzantineCatholic.com. From the Light of the East, a new dawn of unity is in sight. God bless you, go with God, and may God grant you many happy years. Oh!